2: Hello all and welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. So, cut straight to the chase. I am sure that you have noticed the lack of episodes in in recent months. A couple of reasons for this. Uh, Right from the beginning, I had created a list of authors that I was really interested in interviewing, and I have pretty much run through that list. That's not to say that there aren't great authors out there and great books that either I don't know about or I haven't been able to connect with for this. There are, and more interviews will come. Um, I hope they materialize uh, sooner than later. And and by the way, if you have any suggestions for me, um, just go to the Minnesota's Most Notorious Facebook page and and drop me a message. I will definitely respond. I, I love to hear ideas. Obviously, i would written and narrated some episodes on my own, and I have more to do on that front. But I have recently been writing a book about a a series of murders in Minnesota from a long time ago, and that's been taking up a a chunk of time recently. So fear not, the podcast continues. It's one of those shows that you'll definitely want to stay subscribed to because you never know when, when a new episode will drop, like today. Uh, It is so great to have as my guest, Beverly Porter. She is a history buff who writes from her farmhouse office in the Michigan countryside, and she is here to talk about her 2019 book called The Hub of Hell, A True Story of 19th Century Neighborhood Murder and Trial. Great to have you here. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Eric, for inviting me to your podcast.
2: So my first question. How does a Michigan writer come to write a book about Minnesota, and specifically Minnesota history?
0: Well, number one, um, I love history, as you know. And um, knowing this, my mother-in-law, who had been given a family book of some local history by a neighborhood friend, gave it to me. And so I looked through the book. There were some fascinating stories obituaries of, you know, old neighborhood people, and some old newspaper pages. And one of those newspaper pages was the front page from the Greenville, Michigan newspaper, The Daily Call, and it was dated Wednesday, March 27, 1889. And on that front page, they ran a small three-paragraph story about this crime and trial and the Barrett brothers. And it just intrigued me so that I had to know more about it. So I started researching. Um, I found Walter Trennery's book, uh, Murder in Minnesota, at the Grand Rapids Public Library here, and um, read through that. And uh, Trennery had given a short mention, with his take on it, of this story in his book. But I just had more questions, and I wasn't quite in agreement with his final take on it. So I did more research, and most of that was done through the Internet, just looking at genealogy websites, um, historical society websites, and found a lot of really interesting information there. But I also needed to access actual documentation. So I traveled to Minnesota, historical society, two times, in order to do more research. And I copied some articles there from uh, microfilmed newspapers that they housed in the archives there. And um, that really is a fascinating place. If you ever want to study anything in history, it's just a wonderful model for any historical society. It's very well organized. Um, There's an abundance of preserved documents. And their staff are very helpful and knowledgeable.
2: Yes, I totally agree. Well, well, let's start with the title, The Hub of Hell. What was The Hub of
0: Hell? Okay, so The Hub of Hell, it was a neighborhood, but it was also a blind pig, an illegal saloon. And they were located in a very high crime neighborhood. Um, And this neighborhood was located, if you look on the map, it was south of the Mississippi River in downtown Minneapolis, and it was somewhat bordered by Cedar Avenue to the west and Lake Street to the south and Minnehaha to the east, Um, in the general area that is now called the Seward Neighborhood. It's kind of between 35 West and Minnesota State Road 55 and south of I-94. But the saloon, which was located in the neighborhood, It was in the front room of a two story frame house, and that was located at 2830 Fort Avenue. That's near modern day Hiawatha or Snelling Avenue. And some say the Barretts named their saloon, and the neighborhood took on the name as well, and others say the opposite. There was an author who wrote about the history of the fire and police departments of Minneapolis. And he wrote a book that was published back in 1890, and his name was A.E. Costello. And he wrote about the Hub of Hell just briefly, but he said that it was a dreaded spot, severely shunned by the timid, and approached with misgiving at all times, end of quote. So who were
2: the Barretts, and were they model citizens?
0: Well... Let's go back to the beginning with a, with a patriarch of the family. Um, it was John Barrett. Uh, he was an Irishman, and he had emigrated to America from Scotland when he was a teenager. And he found work on the Mississippi River, uh, riverboats there. Uh, first he lived in New Orleans, then he moved on to St. Louis, Missouri. And when he was in St. Louis, he married Ellen Whalen. That was back in 1855. A few years later, they moved to Iowa. They bought a 300 acre farm in Mills County there and they raised eight children. The children's names were Mary, Catherine, John, Frank, Timothy, Henry, Edward, and Peter. But things weren't always rosy, apparently, and John and Ellen divorced in the early 1880s. They sold the farm. They split the proceeds, and John moved to California for a while, but by 1885, he had moved to Minneapolis along with his sons John and Henry. About that time, daughter Mary had also moved there, and she owned a millinery where she fixed ladies' hair and sold hats. So John, son John and Henry, operated a blind pig saloon named the Hub of Hell out of the front room of their house. It was a rowdy place, and they were often in trouble with the law for selling liquor without a license. Henry had been arrested numerous times and was no stranger to License Inspector Smith. And uh, son John must have soon gotten tired of all the mayhem. And he moved back to Omaha, where he got into enough trouble by himself. And, in fact, one night he had an altercation with a bartender that ended with him shot in the leg, and that gunshot wound became infected with gangrene, and he did die. Now, Ellen, the mother with the proceeds from the farm, she moved to Omaha, and she purchased a large house where she took in boarders, and eventually purchased some summer cottages to rent out, and so she actually became a successful businesswoman, which was no small feat in those days. And by the spring of 1887, Tim and Pete, the younger sons, agreed to help with some maintenance on the cottages to prepare them for the summer season. And in exchange for that, Ellen had agreed to send them to Minneapolis to visit Mary, John, and Henry. But in truth, she also sent them to check on the saloon, the Hub of Hell, because she actually held a lien on the property. And uh, by, also by this time, Mary Barrett owned a boarding house. And uh, so she had rooms there for her brothers, Tim and Pete. So by this time, all the siblings were in their 20s, except for Peter, the youngest. He was still a teenager. He was 17 years old at the time. And no, they were not model citizens. <laughs> Before their divorce, uh, there was a rumor that Ellen had been abusive to her husband, both verbally and physically. Tim and Pete were somewhat known as troublemakers back in Omaha. They had gotten into some fights and tended to hang out with a bunch of other young men and would sometimes get into trouble at night just committing some nuisance crimes like chicken stealing or harness theft. And one chapter of my book is actually devoted to the brothers' reputations back in Omaha and their possible connection with the McCarty gang there. But um, after Tim and Pete arrived in Minneapolis, the brothers had some fights among themselves. Basically, Tim had openly flirted with his new wife, Minnie. And uh, Pete and Tim each had a fling with Minnie's sister, Chloe. And so Henry was mad and kind of jealous with both of his brothers, Tim and Pete. And, of course, the saloon and the liquor sales were illegal and had not only resulted in fines, but Henry had been in court and jail from time to time. But Henry also had a really bad temper. He often got into arguments with patrons of the bar, but also with his father, his own business partner. In fact, one time, during a very heated argument, Henry grabbed a gun and actually fired a shot at his own father. So the hub of hell... It was located in a high-crime area, and it seemed to fit right in. But then also, um, as earlier stated, young John Barrett had died of an infected gunshot wound, and Henry was just livid about that. He traveled to Omaha. He vowed he was going to take revenge for his brother's death. So he found the saloon. He confronted the bartender who had shot his brother John, and he pulled a gun on him. Fortunately, it jammed, so he never got a shot. But Henry did manage to get thrown out into the street by the same bartender, which certainly must have bruised his ego. And then Henry returned home and kind of settled down for a while and uh, ended up and got married to Minnesota Betts in the fall of 1886. And also by this time, Sister Mary Barrett had lost her millinery in a fire and she used the insurance money uh, to purchase a large boarding house, and that was located just a few blocks down the street from the Hub of Hell Saloon. But the Journal newspaper, which was one of the major newspapers in the town at the time, had heard of a rumor about a previous fire and insurance company payout that involved Mary Barrett back in Omaha, and they printed this story, and basically insinuated that the same had happened with her millinery there in Minneapolis. But uh, Mary Barrett sued the paper for libel, and she won.
2: Tell us about the the victim of the murder that your book centers around, Thomas Tollefson.
0: Yes, Thomas, uh, he was a Norwegian immigrant, and he was about 30 years old in 1887. And he was a newlywed. He had just married Christina Nelson in February of 87. And he was a hard worker. He worked as a streetcar driver for the Minneapolis Street Railway, where he worked some very long hours, 16 to 17 hours a day on his feet. And he was paid about $2 a day. It wasn't very much, but he saved his money. Um, and managed to buy the couple's first home, and that was located on 17th Avenue, maybe a block or so from the streetcar stables. So he had a very, you know, convenient commute to work every day. But he was well liked. He was respected by his peers. A man of character. He was honest, hardworking, and very dependable. And he drove the Cedar Avenue streetcar line. And his streetcar was number one hundred thirty-two.
2: So walk us through the evening of July twenty-sixth, eighteen eighty-seven, if you don't mind. How did things play out? What happened?
0: Um, sure. Well, July twenty-sixth was a hot summer night, and Pete and Tim had left their sister Mary's boarding house and gone to the hub of hell to hang out with her brother Henry. So even though they they still, you know, got along at times as well. That evening, Minnie Betts Barrett, her sister Chloe Betts, and another young woman named uh, Lottie Welch just kind of sat outside on the front porch of the Hub of Hell in the cooler night air, and um, they watched as the three brothers left to go uptown. They walked across the prairie and boarded a streetcar that carried them into town. And then once they arrived, all three brothers entered the Lally Brothers' saloon. Each had a glass of beer. And while they were there, two men came up to Henry. The men shook hands and began talking. Um, One of the two men wore a star, which would have indicated the badge of a lawman. So Tim and Pete decided to leave Henry with his friends. And go into town. They wanted to do some shopping for clothes, and so they kind of walked up through the the town. And that's when they noticed that there was a commotion going on. There was a fire that night at the Big Boston Block, which was a very popular, very large, multi-storied department store. And that building stood at the corner of Hennepin and Third Street. So that was quite exciting, and they watched the fire and all the action for a while, and then they decided to return to the Lally Brothers' saloon. By the time they got there, Henry had already left, so they went on to another saloon, and while they were there, Tim had too much to drink, which seemed to be kind of a problem for him, even though he was only 22 years old. And so Pete had to kind of coax him into going back home. And uh, eventually he was able to do that. So they boarded another streetcar, and Tim and Pete headed back towards home. And when they arrived back at Mary's boarding house, they learned that Mary was ill and that the doctor had even been called. So the doctor, who was Dr. Heflin, he arrived sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock that night, and Mary introduced her brothers to him. But Tim, who was drunk and was being noisy, was such a distraction that she told him to go out into the hallway or go to bed and just leave the room for a while. And so he did that. So the doctor proceeded to care for Mary, and um, when he had finished, he went into the room where Tim had gone and spoke with him and left instructions for her care, and then the doctor left. And that was sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. But uh, meanwhile, the streetcar schedules had been running behind due to the fire and the streets that were closed nearby the fire. And the night had grown very dark and somewhat rainy. At about 10.30, a streetcar that was driven by John McKinnon hit an obstacle and derailed on Cedar Avenue just north of the turntable at Lake Street. And Thomas Tollifson came along shortly afterward and helped to get McKinnon's car back on the tracks. And during that time, McKinnon warned Tollefson. He had seen some suspicious-looking men lurking in the area and you know, boards across the tracks was not normal. So he warned Tollison to be on the lookout for that. And then the two just carried on with their routes. But uh, later on, as the streetcar drivers returned to the barns on Franklin Avenue, McKinnon noticed that Tollison had not returned, and he grew concerned. He told the other streetcar drivers about the earlier incident, and then he began walking back down Cedar Avenue with an officer, an officer named Hans Burley, who joined him. They decided they would investigate, and all this time, McKinnon hoped that he would meet Thomas on his way back to the streetcar barn. However, at about 11.30 that night, Tollefson had led his last passenger off, a passenger named George Horton. He was the final stop, and that was at the turntable on the corner of Lake Street and Cedar Avenue. And in the midst of turning his streetcar after George Horton got off, he was approached by men who demanded his fares box. So streetcar fare, by the way, it was only 10 cents, and every streetcar driver, their fares box held $20 worth of tickets and change each morning so the most it could hold was the $20. But Tollefson, he refused to hand it over, and he was shot. Another man named Julius Hine had also just arrived home, and he lived very close to the turntable. And he was actually outside and heard the shots that were fired, and he ran toward the streetcar to see if he could help. He got so close that he saw the flashes from the shots fired, and he saw men running from the streetcar. But um, by the time he got clo- got close enough, uh, the mules had been scared, and they took off running, you know, with a streetcar. And so Julius had to run and catch aboard, catch up to them, so that he could hop aboard, grab the reins to stop the streetcar, and that was when. He found Thomas Tallison, the driver, dead on the front platform of the streetcar. So, how did
2: the police eventually connect the Barretts to the murder?
0: Well, it took a little while. Um, At first, there were no leads for weeks. A reward had been offered by the Streetcar Drivers Association as well as the Minneapolis Street Railway, but to no avail. By mid August, private detective named Mike Quinlan told a newspaper reporter that he had information and could possibly bring in the murderers very soon. But there was animosity between him and the city detectives. They'd even had a fistfight at one point. But there, were, there was friction in the past between them, and it, it actually even led to an order uh, to not admit any prisoners brought in by Quinlan to the jail. Mike Quinlan and Norm King were actually partners at this time, but then they parted ways in the 1890s. Norm King became an Ames man, as you know. And then in September, Henry managed to get arrested once again for selling liquor without a license, and he was sentenced to serve 30 days, and he was fined $50. But when the 30 days were up, he still couldn't pay the fine so another 30 days were added to his jail term. But then shortly before the 60 days were up, Henry did pay his $50 fine, and he told the assistant county prosecutor, Robert Jamison that he knew who killed Thomas Tollifson. He gave a statement to county prosecutor Frank Davis that implicated his brothers, Tim and Pete, and immediately Henry became the state's key witness. The police even escorted Henry back to the house on Ford Avenue and he led them down to the cellar to search for evidence, but initially none was found. So they did another search a day or so later and then they did find a streetcar ticket in a corner of the cellar. Henry also claimed that the tin fares box had been chopped up and dumped into a local lake, so the police dragged the lake searching in the area right where Henry told them to look, but no evidence was found there. However, Henry, Minnie, and Chloe were placed in protective custody.
2: Where was Henry quarantined? Where did they take him?
0: Uh, They were kept at the lake house in Waconia, under the watch of an officer named Levi Gorman. Uh, It was winter, so the place which was known as a popular tourist destination during the summer months was pretty quiet with very few people around. And they were about 30 miles west of Minneapolis and would return.
1: Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little.
2: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. I train for
0: the trials.
2: What was the prosecution's strategy and the defense's strategy in, in Tim's trial?
0: Well, the prosecution, which was... Um, attorney Frank Davis, and his assistant Robert Jamison. As for their strategy, well, they knew that Tim had a drinking problem, and that led to memory lapses. Tim also was not bright. His own attorney, Bill Irwin, once described him as, and I'll quote, a quasi-imbecile, end of quote, and the Barrett family had even considered sending him away to an institution when he was just a boy. So it wasn't difficult to trick Tim into conflicting statements or recollections, um, whether it was a minor detail or a significant one. And so the prosecution worked that to their advantage. But they also had Henry. He was an admitted accomplice, and he testified with confidence and detail, yet without any remorse against his own brother. And uh, as for the defense... It was Will Irwin and his assistant, William Donahue. They had several character witnesses who testified about what a scoundrel and a liar that Henry was in order to cast doubt about his testimony. And uh, they also brought forth Dr. Heflin. And, of course, the doctor had an unbiased testimony that placed Tim and Pete at Mary's house at the time when the crime had occurred. Another potential witness during Tim's trial, especially, was George Coleman. He was a boarder at Mary's place, and he was there that night and could back up the doctor's testimony. But unfortunately, George Coleman was very ill. He had pneumonia during Tim's trial. It was December, and there was no way that he could safely come into the court and testify. So that was a problem.
2: Was there a pivotal moment in, in Tim's trial that, that sealed his fate?
0: Um, Possibly. Uh, Prosecutor Davis, he had attempted to get Dr. Heflin to weaken his own testimony. He finally cornered him by asking if he would swear that the men he saw at Mary's house that night were Tim and Pete, and that the man he gave instructions to was Tim Barrett. Well, the doctor admitted it was dark that he didn't see them distinctly and that it was the only time that he saw them and that he would only swear that he thought it was Tim Barrett. And apparently that was enough to sow seeds of doubt to the jury.
2: So Tim was found guilty and sentenced to die. Next up would be his brother's trial. What was different about Peter's trial?
0: So it's different about Peter's trial, well, for one thing, Peter was confident that he'd be acquitted um, and that Tim, his brother, would be granted an appeal and a subsequent acquittal. Peter was very attentive during the trials and he was upbeat. He conversed daily with reporters in attendance, and um, another thing that was very important was that uh, defense attorney Irwin had a new key witness in Julius Hine, the eyewitness to the crime. John Barrett had spoken to Henry shortly before Pete's trial began. And Henry told John that Julius Hine was a witness that the prosecution could not buy, which was interesting. So John passed that information on to Irwin. Oddly, Julius Hine had been overlooked during Tim's trial, not really sure why possibly because Attorney Irwin had been ill during much of Tim's trial, and it might have just simply gotten overlooked. But Julius Hine was able to give very interesting and detailed testimony concerning his personal observations of the crime. He saw and heard the shots. He saw two men run from the scene of the crime into the cemetery and he was the one that boarded the runaway streetcar, slowed those frightened mules, and actually found the driver dead on the streetcar platform. Another another thing that was different is that Peter gave a very lengthy testimony uh, regarding his treatment after he was arrested in Omaha. He told about how the police offered him whiskey on the train ride back to Minnesota and uh, how the police interrogated him at the police station once he arrived there in Minneapolis. He also told a story of how the police would tell him a story of what occurred, and they would say to him, now, isn't it so that it happened this way? So they were all the time trying to bait him and and hook him somehow with a story. But um, another thing that was interesting is that when he was at the police station, There was a lot of noise and uh, ruckus going on outside of this room where he was being interrogated. And the police told him that um, there was an angry mob that was just outside and ready to lynch him. And they tried to get Peter to make a confession and said that if he would just tell them his side of the story, they would sneak him out a window. They would somehow get him away from this crazy mob. So that was another strange twist. Um, and also, uh, Henry, at this time, during Peter's trial, was much more subdued. He and many had just lost their newborn baby. So he was you know, in the midst of a personal grief right then as well. But um, the various witnesses at Peter's trial was very much like at Tim's trial except there were a few others whose testimony shed suspicion on the way the prosecutors would try to intimidate witnesses for the defense. In fact, one witness testified that she had heard Attorney Jameson say that the Barretts would hang whether they were guilty or not.
2: So Peter was found guilty as well, sentenced to the same fate, Execution as his brother. How, how did they handle their 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 prison time as they awaited their punishment? Did they handle it well, or did they, or, or, or did they suffer mentally?
0: Well, their attorneys were all the time working on an appeal, so they they did file their appeals on behalf of both of their clients. However, it went all the way to the state Supreme Court, but they denied those appeals. But while Tim and Pete were in jail, they actually became kind of popular in a way. The young ladies kind of were taken with them. They were young men, and I guess they were almost treated like kind of a rock star of the Wild West in a way. They had um, young women would come by the jail and bring them, you know, baked goods and and all of this, and... uh, but there was also um, another prisoner at the jail who worked with them, talked with them, and actually got them to be uh, a little better educated, a little more proper with their speaking because they were quite they were quite rough and and everything when they first got into jail. So, not that they were refined in any way, <laughs> but um, you know they they just. I think they made some good use of their time in that way. Another thing was that Sheriff Eggy, I think he spent some time with them as well, and um, almost in a way, how should I say it, well, he was concerned for these young men. And um, actually, out of his own pocket, he purchased suits for them to wear on the day of their execution, which was certainly not something that happened every day, I'm sure. <laughs>
2: So tell us about the executions of the brothers.
0: Uh, the executions, uh, they were scheduled for Friday, March 22, 1889, at 11 a.m. And that week leading up to the, that Friday, their attorneys, Will Irwin, Will Donahue, and John T. Burns, they did all they could to try to convince Governor Miriam to grant a stay, to halt the executions. Affidavits were given by Officer Levi Gorman, who had been the officer that surveilled Henry and Minnie and Chloe while they were under protected custody, and also Chloe Betts, Minnie's own sister. And those affidavits, they claimed that Henry had admitted that Peter was innocent. You know, Levi Gorman even visited the governor the afternoon of. Thursday which would have been March 21st visited with the governor but so also did prosecutor Jameson. and whatever Gorman said prosecutor Jameson would re- would refute it and anyway uh, a final visit to the governor by Will Donahue that occurred Thursday afternoon as well and if you don't mind I'd kind of like to read out of my book um, there's a quote of Will Donahue? Sure, sure. It was quite dramatic and compelling in what he, how he pled for his clients to the governor. So I'll, I'll read that now. We are so near the grave now that there is no time for misrepresentation. The whole truth, as is known by counsel on both sides, should be shown to your excellency. In the name of the living God, I proclaim before the world that I believe Peter Barrett did not fire a shot at Thomas Tollefson or take any hand, act, or part in the consummation of that fearful crime. In the name of humanity, justice, and mercy, I ask you now to exercise the power which is in you vested by the people of this great commonwealth on behalf of an unfortunate boy who was raised amid adverse circumstances to save him from the untimely death which he has been condemned to suffer, End of quote. But there had also been petitions that were circulated. One locally circulated had been signed by over 300 people, and nearly a third of those signers were attorneys or judges. Uh, another particular petition had been signed by nearly every one of the jurors from Pete's trial. And the governor seemed unmoved, but there was the possibility that Peter was not even of legal age to receive the death penalty, and that somewhat concerned the governor. However, Prosecutor Jameson assured the governor that Peter was of age, that he was not less than 21 years old, which was a lie. At the time of the crime, he was only 17 years old and would not have been eligible for execution. But um, yeah, Robert Jameson had a bit of a, a foot in the door with the governor. Governor Miriam was the newly elected Republican governor, and Jameson had been the treasurer of the Hennepin County Republican Committee, so they knew one another. Also, the night before the executions. The brother's sister, Mary Barrett Coleman, and her friend, Addie Bryant. Addie Bryant, she was the widow of James Bryant, who had been the Register of Deeds for Minneapolis. She was a reputable socialite, and her daughter, Jessie, actually married the son of Doc Ames. So she accompanied Mary Coleman, and they visited the governor, plead on the brother's behalf but it was like nothing and no one could convince the governor to intervene. So the gallows, they had been built inside the Hennepin County Jail, and Sheriff Eggy had sent out 100 invitations. An invitation was required to attend the hangings, and most of those had been sent to other sheriffs around the country. A special telegraph line had been installed at the jail just to report on the event, in the morning of the hangings, a crowd had gathered outside of the, of the jail, and they actually filled the streets on that corner. They estimated there were 5,000 people. They were curious. They were excited about the whole event um, in a rather morbid way. <laughs> but upstairs where Tim and Pete were jailed, it was a very somber mood. The brothers had their breakfast, but they were barely able to eat. Their priests... Father Corbett, Fathers James and Henry McGalrick were in attendance, and they prayed with them early that morning. And later, Tim and Pete changed into the brand-new suits that Sheriff Aggie had bought for them to wear. A bit later, Irwin and Donahue arrived one last time. Peter had actually held out hope for commutation until this. It was said that when he first saw the attorneys coming to the jail and heard they were there, he was excited. He was very hopeful that they were bringing good news, but they weren't. You know, The governor had decided not to interfere, not to intervene. So they, too, were very sad about the whole situation and very sorry to see their clients handled this way, and they knew they'd be executed. So the brothers were resolved. They knew this was going to happen. Around 10 a.m., they asked to see Joe Mannix. He was the reporter from the St. Paul Pioneer Press, the man who had somewhat befriended them in a way and had interviewed them and covered their story many times in the paper. And uh, they trusted him. So he was there for final goodbyes. About quarter to eleven, Sheriff Eggy and the deputies approached the brothers' cells. They brought the black execution shrouds for them to wear, which would go over their suits, they actually had a, a cap they would wear as well. Uh, they were handcuffed and they all said their goodbyes. And it was said there wasn't even a dry eye among them between the prisoners, the sheriff, the deputies, none of them, the priests. So at this point um, it was time to go. They were led downstairs through the jail. Uh, the other prisoners who were in jail saw them coming and not a word was said. It was utter silence. Um, They entered this large inner room where the gallows stood, and so the men who were there to witness it, at least a hundred of them, uh, they were totally silent. Uh, Basically, all the sounds that were heard were the footsteps of the prisoners and the deputies, and the words of the litany of the dead that were spoken by the priests and the brothers responding, God have mercy on us. They approached the gallows. They were placed in position over the trap doors. Nooses were placed around their necks, and final prayers were said. As the black cap was pulled down over Peter's face, he moaned and he whispered, Oh, Lord, I am innocent. At 11.13, 30 a.m., Sheriff Eggie dutifully pulled the lever, and the brothers were hung.
2: So how do you personally think that the murder of Thomas Tollefson happened?
0: Well, after looking through my files, all the information that I gathered, I actually believe that Tim and Pete Barrett were at Mary's house, just as the doctor had said, and um, that they were not guilty of this crime. We know that Henry was at the scene of the crime. He admitted it. Julius Hine, the only eyewitness, saw only two men running from the turntable into the cemetery, not three. So Henry had an accomplice, but who? Possibly one of the men he had met up with in the Lally Brothers' saloon that night. Or maybe it was someone else, maybe someone who owed Henry a favor. I don't know. Um, And as to why, well... You know, their mother, Ellen, refused to help Henry financially any further. She was poised to give the saloon to, to Pete and Tim. Henry was jealous of his brothers, and he vowed they would never get the Hub of Hell saloon. This was something that he looked at it as his, and uh, he was not going to see it handed off to his younger brothers. But, you know, Henry had connections, and I believe he framed his brothers out of spite and complete disregard for the rest of the Barrett family.
2: Did these murders have any lasting legacy in the city of Minneapolis?
0: Yes, they did. I have another quote for you that is from the Hub of Hell, chapter 34, page 271. It's a a statement given by John T. Barnes, the assistant attorney for the Barrett brothers, and it was published in the St. Paul Daily Globe on March 26, 1889. It's a a short excerpt from his statement, but I think it's very powerful. I assert that the hanging of Peter Barrett was a judicial murder, end of quote. And also, um, I'll quote from the following page, page 272, Ten days after the Barrett brothers were executed, A bill to abolish the death penalty, which had been postponed, was again debated. The Barrett case was cited as having had a profound impact on lawmakers at the time. And legislation to change the manner in which executions were carried out was passed. And decades later, on April 22, 1911, the death penalty was abolished in Minnesota.
2: Interesting. So where can people buy your book?
0: Sure. Well, locally here in Michigan, um, it's on the shelf in a couple of stores—the uh, Kriegel Parable Christian Store in Grandville, and also Schuler Books in Grand Rapids. But it can be ordered um, nationwide, even in some countries around the globe, through independent bookstores, and it is available on Amazon, both in paperback and as a Kindle eBook.
2: Well, this, is, this has been great. Thanks again.
0: Well, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate
2: it. Again, I have been speaking to Beverly Porter. The name of her book is The Hub of Hell, A True Story of 19th Century Neighborhood Murder and Trial. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious. Until next time.